Okay, let's start with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. Help us to use this time to deepen our relationship with you and with one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sorry, y'all stuck in this week. Mike and the rest, as you know, are in Israel. So, I'm, I've read the book and um, I'm prepared to talk to you about it. Uh, we started, the book starts with the story of the fig tree. The, the chapter, we're on chapter 2, and chapter 2 begins with the story of the fig tree that Jesus curses. So Jesus comes upon this fig tree as they're entering into Jerusalem, and it says he really wants figs. Now the Bible's clear that it's not the season for figs, so this tree could not possibly bear fruit. And so Jesus curses the tree, and the tree dies. They, they go in, they come back. And the tree that he cursed died. In between that, Jesus clears the temple, which is a famous, uh, everybody knows that, that story, right? Jesus goes in the temple, knocks the money changers, uh, um, tables over, and says, you, you know, you've turned my, ha my, uh, turned my house into a house of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And this is the main focus that they focus on in the Tuesday, when, as they're, uh, um, on the Monday, as they're, they're uh, working through the week, the last week of Jesus' life. So first I want to start, I mean, any questions from, the, from that chapter? Any questions on this section? Anything that was lingering in your head? Anything that stood out to you? Anything you particularly didn't like? I really like this book. I think it's it's good. But one of the things I when I like there's almost no book I like that I don't disagree with in points. So I'm gonna talk to you a little bit today about stuff where I'm not they, they I'm not quite sure I completely agree with the authors on a couple points. You know, I, I, I focused or I, I was surprised by the comment made by one of his readers about this. Jesus was really doing a political. Yes. A political. Everything that's going on is everything that's going on is political. See, part of the uh, I talked this morning in my sermon about how after the Enlightenment we make this we there's certain things that we the way we think after the Enlightenment is life being in spheres. So you have a political sphere and a religious sphere, a public sphere and a private sphere. So life is lived. It, there's the natural world and the, the supernatural. And so everything has these compartments. That's the way we think after the Enlightenment. But in Jesus' time, that is not the way people think. So there is no separation between religion and politics anyways. There's no such thing as a religious sphere of life and a political sphere of life. Every political act, think about this. This goes all the way back. When Israel, if, if, in Israel's time, when, is, when it was in its infancy, in Canaan, in the, in the, let me put this right, because I'm not going to be able to hold on to that, talk into it at the same time. Uh, in, uh, in, the, in Canaan, where, which is where Israel was, if one Canaanite tribe fought another, and one Canaanite tribe won, it was understood to mean, more or less, that one tribe's god had defeated another tribe's god. And usually, you would just become the religion of whoever defeated you, whoever enslaved you, because their god won. Because human, um, all the actions that take place on the, in the political sphere are understood to have some reference in, a, in, in heaven. They're the act of God or gods or stuff like that. So 
There is no way to form a religious movement in Jesus' time that is not also a political movement. The concept of having two separate kinds of movements just doesn't exist. There is no political movement that is not a religious movement. There is no religious movement that is not a political movement. That's just not how anybody thinks. And the thing is, because we live post-enlightenment, because we have this idea of spheres, when we realize that, it shocks us. But it would shock them to, real, to think in terms of having separate spheres of life. Everything was just a piece of the same thing. And so you cannot understand the Gospels without understanding the political implications of what Jesus is doing. You just can't. It's not possible. In a, um, think about this. Um, we're going to talk about this more next week, but in like apocalypses like Daniel and Revelation, and there's even a little apocalypse in Mark we're going to talk about next week, where people are talking about what we would call the end of the world, which is really the completion of the world. Um, political figures are understood to essentially either represent or be an extension of like cosmic beings. It's like in, in the book of Daniel, when you have uh, um, the, there's, a, there's a beast, and the beast has a, a tooth, and on the tooth there's a mouth, and the mouth speaks these words. That mouth on the tooth is understood to be Antiochus Epiphanes. That's who he's talking about. A political leader who ruled over Greece and ruled over the Seleucid Empire. That person is understood to be like a piece of a cosmic reality. Like this is as if this beast, this demon manifests itself in this person. And so those kinds of, that's just the way people understood the world to work. If somebody had power, that power was supposed, was understood to have divine origins. That's how people got power. So, there, so if, if Jesus is, if Jesus threatens, is understood to threaten spiritual powers, he's also threatening political powers because there's no distinction between the two. There's only one world, and it's, it's the same thing of what I'm talking about in my sermon, is that we, we understand the world to have this natural order, and then we, under, we usually understand God is like intruding on that natural order. That's how we understand the activity God. That's not how people thought back then. There's no natural order. There's just the activity of spiritual beings causing things to happen in the world. And so that keeps us from being often becomes an impediment to understanding what we're reading when we're reading the, the, the scriptures because the scriptures are all written way, 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 way before the Enlightenment. You had a question, Joe? Oh, comment? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. That's, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the, it's a weird way to start the chapter, right, with a fig tree. It's a weird story. So, it's probably, I mean, if Jesus cursed the fig tree because he's mad because he didn't get figs, it seems like a misuse of divine power, and he seems a little bit like a petulant child throwing a tantrum, and it's like, we can't even probably conceive of Jesus acting that way. It's just really kind of a jerky move to the poor tree, right? Um, but what he po they point out, and this is something that's super important. Mark has what some people call the hamburger method of telling a story. So he has the story, and this is a framing story. Then he puts a story in between. Um, a the most, probably the most like, clear and famous example of this is actually when, earlier in Mark when Jesus goes to visit someone whose daughter is supposed to have died. In the middle of it, a woman comes who's been bleeding her whole life, and she touches Jesus' cloak, and he stops, and he says, someone touched me. Someone took power out of me. And then she admits she did it, and he says, your faith has made you well. Then he, then he goes, and he, he saves that little girl. 
So the little girl being saved is the framing story. And then the woman in the middle is the meat of the hamburger so if you, or the sandwich, right? You got the bread on the outside, the meat is the woman. The point being that the larger story, the bigger story is the frame, but the point of the story is in the middle, right? So the same thing's happening here. The fig tree is a framing story. It starts with him seeing the tree and cursing it. Then he goes and does something else. He comes back and the tree is dead. So we're understood that story is going to help us understand what happens in the middle. So what happens in the middle is he clears the temple. So what's what so the real question isn't about why does he kill the fig? The fig is a representation of what happens in the temple. The real question is why does he clear the temple? What's really going on? And a, the way a lot of Christians understand Jesus clearing of the temple is either a, like, basically saying the temple doesn't matter anymore. And to some degree, that probably goes back pretty early. There's a, fairly early in Christianity, the temple as a, as a force, as a connection with God, gets replaced with Jesus. Jesus becomes kind of the replacement for, of the temple for early Christians. This is one of the reasons why when Rome, see in Rome in 72 AD, comes and destroys Israel. Right, sieges it, destroys it, destroys the temple. The temple is, for a lot of Jews, understood to be the, the footstool of God. This is where God comes and lives on the earth. This is where you touch the divine. This is where, the, where divinity itself lives. The temple is super, super important. It's, it's the center of your faith. For Israel, Judaism at this time is a temple-centric religion. The, the temple is the center of the faith. Jews from all over would go on pilgrimages. It cost them a lot of money. It was, it was where you focused your faith. When the temple's destroyed, two forms of Judaism really survive. One is the Pharisees, which becomes rabbinical Judaism, because the Pharisees had already made the temple less important. It was still super important, but they'd made the book more important. So the scriptures had become more important, had become as important or only slightly less important than the temple. So when the temple is destroyed, Jews can turn to the books as the center of their faith. So Judaism changes from a temple-centric faith to a book-centric faith, and that's what we call rabbinical Judaism, which is pretty much what we have today in one form or another. The other form of Judaism that survives is Christianity because Christianity has something else which was either as important or more important than the temple, and that's Jesus Christ. Christianity becomes a person-centric faith instead of a book-centric faith or a temple-centric faith. So when the temple's destroyed, Christians don't, uh, Christians don't stay around and fight. Um, we're going to talk about this again a little more next week. They don't fight the Romans. They don't engage in the rebellion. They leave Jerusalem for a nearby town, which helps create the split between Jews and Christians. Why? Because the temple isn't as important to them as it was to other forms of Judaism, because Jesus was the, had become the center of their faith. But the question is whether Jesus was a temple-centric Jew. In other words, did Jesus believe as, it, as a, Jew, a believing Jewish person, did he believe that the temple was the center of Jewish faith? 
And Marcus Borg and Croson in the book essentially argue, yes, he did. Jesus was a temple-centric Jew. Most Jews were. There's no reason to think that he wasn't. But what Jesus may have been is a reformer of the temple, someone who thought the temple wasn't what it was supposed to be. There were times in Judaism's history, because remember, if you remember the book, they go into Jeremiah, for instance. They go back to the prophets, and they point out that there are times in Judaism's history when prophets who fully understood the temple to be important were critical of the way the temple was functioning in, in Jewish society. Either it had become a seat of oppression, or it had ceased to really put God first. And so the temple for these prophets becomes a concept, an idea, rather than just a place. And their goal is to reform the temple, not to get rid of it, not to die, deny its significance, but to cleanse it in a, in, a, in a spiritual sense, in the sense of getting the right people in there. So they go, they, there's a lot in this chapter about the way the temple has, has, been, has functioned differently for different people throughout Judaism's history. The point is, is that Jesus isn't significantly different from any prophet who comes before and says the temple's not working right. The people who are in control of it aren't doing the right things. There's a part that's famous in Isaiah where, I, where God says, I don't want your burnt offerings. I don't want your sacrifices. This is, it's not worth anything to me. What I want is for you to act right. But people often forget that the same writer a little later on goes, once you start to act right, then you bring your burnt offerings. Then you bring your sacrifices. Then the temple will be what it's supposed to be. The idea being not that the temple isn't important, but that the temple only operates right when the people who are valuing the temple or running the temple are acting right. So that Jesus, that Dominic Crossan and, and Borg are arguing that Jesus remains a temple-centric Jew. What he wants to do is reform the temple. Um, I want to go back a second because I just talked about sacrifice. Another way Christians sometimes understand this, the, the activity of the temple or Jesus, Jesus' action in the temple of clearing, is that Jesus denies the value of sacrifice. Does, it, does, anybody, does anybody understand what the money changers were doing in the temple? Does that, did y'all get that from the book? The, so if you, if you brought a, the Bible has strict rules. The Bible has strict rules for what kinds of things you can sacrifice. So if you sacrifice a lamb, it can't have any broken bones. It can never broken a bone. If you sacrifice a bird, it can't, it can't have black splotches or too many black splotches. There's rules for what animals you can sacrifice. There's also a way you can sacrifice a temple tax. You can pay money as a sacrifice. Well, the money that most people would have had at the time would have been Roman money. And on Roman money, there was the face of the emperor. So if you were going to pay the temple tax, you had to trade the Roman money for a temple coin which had no face on it. You understand? So the money changers, what they were doing is they were taking, um, they were taking people's sacrifices that, that people, people moving the animals like hundreds and thousands of miles. Those animals get hurt, stuff like that. By the time they get there, most people's animals are not really worthy to sacrifice. They would trade them. 
And if they had Roman coins, they had to trade them for, temple, for the temple coins. That's what the money changers are doing. And Croissant and Borg argue that this was a, a perfectly reasonable thing to do, that, this, that there was nothing inherently evil on, uh, in this, that there's no reason to think that anybody was being cheated. I've ha- I've, there, there's a lot of Christian theologians who, probably without historical justification, argue the opposite. And that, what, that the reason Jesus is upset is that these money changers, these people who are changing out the temple tax, the people who are trading out the animals, are charging a large fee. And so that they're literally like feasting on these people monetarily. There is no historical evidence probably of that. However, I'm of the personal opinion that it's not completely unreasonable to think that that was going on given human nature. But Croissant and Borg are right that, there's, that you're historically unjustified in making that accusation. That what's going on in the court of the Gentiles is just perfectly reasonable activity given the way the Bible works. And that Jesus wouldn't have been bothered by that. So it's not about destroying the temple. It's not about Jews getting feasted upon by other Jews by some kind of unfair exchange rate. And it's also not about sacrifice itself. Borg and Croissant go really, really deep into the nature of sacrifice. We as Christians tend to think of sacrifice as vicarious suffering. We think of the animal paying the price for our sin because that's how we've come to understand Jesus. And so we take that understanding of sacrifice and we project it on what the Jews were doing at the time. That's not how Jews understood sacrifice. That's not how most people understood sacrifice. Vicarious suffering is absent from almost the entire script, the entirety of Scripture, except the servant songs in Isaiah. There's no concept of one person suffering for another person's sins in the Old Testament. That's not what sacrifice was supposed to be. Sacrifice. This is the point that Croissant and and uh, Borg make. Sacrifice is about a meal that you have with God. You're going to go and you're going to meet God and you're going to sit down and you sacrifice an animal because that's how people learned to form relationships in ancient times. If you wanted to start a relationship with someone, you shared a meal with them. If, you, if it was really important, a really important person, you'd, sac- you'd kill an animal and you'd share the meal. That's what sacrifice was about. It was not about one person suffering for another. And so some Christians' understanding of the clearing of the temple is Jesus replacing this system of vicarious suffering, essentially saying you don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. The one true sacrifice is here. That's probably completely alien to Jesus, they argue. That's just not how ancient people thought. It's not how ancient Judaism thought, and it's not what's going on. So these are ways most Christians have come to understand the clearing of the temple. The replacing of the temple the replacing of sacrifice, the unfair exchange rate in the temple. And they're like, none of that's probably true. What Jesus is talking about is the corruption of the people who are running the temple. The people who are running the temple are colluding with Rome. The people who are running the temple are oppressing their fellow people. That's what the problem is. That's what Jesus is angry about. And that's what the act of of throwing over the tables is a political act. And it's a symbolic act. It's a symbolic attack on the power of those who are currently running the temple. It is an act of protest. This is what Croissant and Borg are arguing.
why, are the, what, why is he pro se? Why is he so angry about the people who are running the temple? Well, to explain that, they get into a long discussion about what? The priesthood. The second chapter is a lot about, it's about, the second chapter has three main parts. What is sacrifice? What is the temple? What is the priesthood? They argue that Jesus does not have a problem with sacrifice. They argue that Jesus does not have a problem with the temple in principle. He does have a problem with the temple as it's being lived now, but he does not have a problem with the temple in principle. The temple is, he's still a temple-centric Jew. They argue he does have a problem with the priesthood. And they point out that it's a long, complicated affair of what makes someone a priest in Judaism. Now, before we get into this, to this issue, I want to stop. Any questions, thoughts, comments, anything anybody wants to know, anything else about the chapter that I haven't touched on yet, anything about what I've said so far, anything anybody want to say, wants to say? Anything that's kind of shocked you or surprised you in what I've said so far? My thoughts are, have nothing to do with the chapter. Oh, really? Chapter. What do they have to do with Right, there's no, there's, it's they gone. They don't talk about it, they don't right. worry about it, they right. don't try to replace it. You know, to me, the ark was what the temple was built for. Right. Why then the temple if there's no ark? Well, I mean, the, the ark is important. The ark's importance as a religious, I mean, if you think about it, Jeremiah doesn't talk much about the ark. Isaiah doesn't talk about the ark. The ark becomes less important as time goes on. So when this is, so going, this, you know, this kind of gets into the whole history of the temple, right? When Israel is first in the desert, wandering the desert, after they escape from Egypt, the ark is what they build, which is the seat upon which God sits, and the ark did not live in a place. It moved around with them because they were semi-nomadic. And the ark lived inside of a tent. And the ark is understood, literally, Moses would go into the tent. God would come and sit on the ark, talk to God. God would leave. And then Moses would come out and tell people what God said. During David's time, David builds himself a palace. The ark is still sitting in a tent. And David goes, that ain't right. I shouldn't be able to live in a palace while God lives in a tent. I'm going to build a palace to God. We're going to put the ark inside of a temple. And God at first says, that's a great idea, but I don't want you building it because you haven't exactly acted right. Solomon will build me the temple instead, which is weird because Solomon acts worse than David in some ways. But the, uh, for some reason, Solomon gets to build the temple. And so, the ark, so then God's glory comes and descends in the temple. So yes, the ark's understood to reside in the temple. But as time goes on, the temple becomes more important for Judaism than the ark itself. It becomes, it, the ark's importance just becomes um, de-emphasized. It's still important. It's still in there, everything else. It, in the same way that the ark holds the Ten Commandments, but the ark becomes the focus, the temple holds the ark, and the temple becomes the focus. Um, the ark is lost when Babylon invades. Nobody knows what happened to it. Nobody knows if it was really still there, right? We don't know what was found inside the temple when, when Babylon takes it apart. The temple had been destroyed long before and rebuilt. I think Mike went, got into that last week. Um, 
The uh, but but it had already become de-emphasized in scripture. It's not doesn't play the central role it did before. And the temple is still itself is a bigger focus. The loss of the ark is not something that's over focused on at all. It doesn't become a big struggle. They don't seem very upset about it. There's no long psalms or anything about the loss of the ark. There is there are psalms about the destruction of the temple itself, but the ark just became less important. Now some of the um, it's interesting because that image of the ark moving around as a mobile reality becomes very, in, it's, it's interesting you bring that up, becomes important for early Christians because Jesus being a living temple is, is looked back as kind of a, a, time, a, a move to a holier time when the ark is what matters. Um, in, in a sense, Jesus understood to kind of replace that reality, the reality of the ark. In fact, in John, when it says the... Um, the word became flesh. The actual word is like the word tabernacled with humanity. So it's the idea of Jesus replacing the tabernacle, replacing the ark and the tent in which it dwelled. Anybody else have any questions, comments, anything said so far, or anything else I've missed? Because this is going to be a long discussion about the priesthood. <laughs> Priesthood's a complicated thing. Anybody else? Anything else? Okay, so Jesus' problem is not with sacrifice. It's not with the temple as a concept. It's with the priesthood. What's his problem with the priesthood? In the beginning, before, like in Abraham's time, there are no priests. I mean, there are, but we don't know anything about them. There's one priest mentioned before, before the establishment of the ark and the time in the desert, and that's this guy named Melchizedek. So, so Abraham is essentially the chief of a tribe, right? And he's also God's emissary on earth. This goes back to what we were talking before. Abraham's reality is political, religious. He, is, he talks to God directly. Abraham walks with God, talks with God. They hang out. They're friends. You know, they, they just chat. And then he goes and tells people what's going on. Abraham's functions as a priest, but has, there's no such thing as a formal role of priest. Abraham offers sacrifice. Abraham does the things that priests do, but no one calls him priest. Abraham meets a priest named Melchizedek, and he comes out of nowhere. We're told that he's a, he's a, a priest of the Most High. He disappears, and we hear nothing else about him. Like, he's there for a few lines. Abraham's really happy to meet a priest, and then he's gone. And that becomes really important for Christians later on because Christians claim that the priesthood of Christianity comes from that earlier priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then we have Exodus. We have the move into the desert. We have Aaron and his sons, and they become the Levitical priesthood. So everybody knows that there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? The tribe of Levi disappears. There is no tribe of Levi after Moses' time. Joseph's tribe is broken up into Manasseh and Ephraim. The, Le the Levites lose their position as a tribe of Israel. And instead, they become a nation of priests for everyone in Israel. If you are of the tribe of Le Levi, you have no assigned land in Israel like other tribes do. Your job is to act as priest, to offer sacrifice, to be a mediator between God and humanity. And priesthood is then something you're in, you were born into. 
there are basically lesser and greater priests. There are priests that are actual priests, and there's Levites. They're just called Levites who just help out in the temple and in, uh, and in other places of worship. The, um, so you have, so that, that's what it meant to be a priest, was to be descended from Aaron. I mean, to be of the tribe of Levi. That's what it meant to be a priest. And you had a role in the temple. And you had a role in Jewish society, and that stuff was all assigned. Well, as time goes on, the, you go into Babylon, you come back. The nature of priesthood starts to change because these people aren't everywhere all at once. They're not all very good at what they do. Other people come up. There's a place in Jeremiah, I believe, where he talks about the Rechabites, and the Rechabites are, are a, like a sub-tribe of Israel, and they, they, almost, they live as priests. There's something called Nazarites. We don't know what Nazarites' role were. We knew you could make a, a, a vow to God, not cut your hair, didn't drink wine, and it meant something. It meant something about your relationship with God, and it made you important to the people. Were those people priests? We don't know. The, what it means to be a priest become, starts to become fuzzy when you start to look through Scripture. There are people who sit there and say, the temple really isn't that important. I'm going to set up an altar out and about. I'm going to set up my own altar that's not in the temple. And there's parts in the Bible where people say, hey, that's a really good idea. Everybody, everywhere God's wor- God can be worshipped anywhere, you don't need a temple. And there's parts in the Bible where God says, destroy all those other altars. The only place people need to be worshipping is, is the temple itself. So who set up those altars? What did those altars mean? What was the role of the priest in all that? The answer is we don't know. What we do know is that what it means to be a priest gets really, really fuzzy as you go along in Scripture. And then um, at when the Persians take over um, Israel, they reestablish Israel after a long um, uh, um, diaspora. They set Israel up. Eventually, um, Alexander the Great takes over Israel, and the rulers of his empire set up people in the temple, and those people are the priest. So the, what the priest becomes is essentially the governor of Israel. The priest gains a lot of political power. Priest is running the place. And if you, were the, if you were the ruler of the Seleucid Empire, the empire that Alexander started, then you would sit there and you go, you over there, I really like you. You're the priest now. So you get to run the temple. The priest has a, has a, a religious duty that's set down in Scripture of what they're supposed to do. But they're also this purely political entity. And by the way, they're a political entity that is assigned by an empire that's oppressing you. Doesn't work very well. One of the priests of the temple starts to say, you know what, we need to act more like Greeks. So I want you all to get, stop getting circumcised. We don't need to circumcise anymore. And by the way, we can eat, we can eat pork now because Greeks do that. We should do that too. So one of the priests of the temple basically starts radically changing the law. And you have this group of people called the Maccabees who who create a revolution. That revolution is primarily a revolution against the priesthood and the people who are allied with the priesthood. There's two groups of Jews. Jews who want to make Jews more like Greeks and Jews who want to keep their original culture and religion. And there's a civil war. The Maccabees win. They not only win the Civil War, but they also throw off Greek rule completely from Israel for about 100 years. And even Rome doesn't mess with them for a while. It's a pretty amazing time. 
those people set themselves up as the priests. They're called Hasmonean priests. They're not Levites. There's nothing in Scripture that establishes them as a priesthood. They're priests because they won. They won the Civil War. The Hasmoneans eventually themselves become subservient to Rome. And Rome starts picking the priesthood. The people who are connected to the temple are usually very, very wealthy. And these wealthy people often oppress the, people, the other people of Israel. So you have people who are wealthy and oppressive, who are picked by Rome, who is oppressing you, to run the temple and essentially run your country. The priests themselves were in this weird kind of position, and they would try to play both sides. They did it for their own good, and in their own mind, they were doing it for, the, for the, the good of Israel itself. They didn't want Rome to come in and completely take over. They were essentially saying, hey, have, at least we're, Jew, we're Jews ruling Jews. We want to keep that situation. It wasn't eventually, they don't maintain power forever. That power gets shared with Herod, who's a king. It gets shared with a Roman governor. So that, they, their, that, their argument becomes even weaker as time goes on. But they don't want Israel to, they don't want Rome to destroy the temple. So what they have to do is they have to act enough like they don't like the Romans and be opposed enough to the Romans that, that, the, that they're, the people they're ruling over, the Jewish people, don't throw them off. But they also have to appease the Romans enough that the Romans don't come in and destroy everything. Yes, question? The Maccabees, yes. That's who, that's who, the Maccabees are the ones who win the war. No, no, no. The Maccabees are originally the people who, who fight the Greek appointed priests. Yeah. My point, though, the point about all that is, is that the priesthood no longer really looks like anything the Bible established. It just becomes a matter of political and military dominance. So you have an oppressive system with the priests at the top, established by Rome, and then the argument that Crosson and Borg make is that that's what Jesus doesn't like. By the way, most Jews didn't like it. Doesn't put Jesus in line with the way most people feel, and that his attack on the temple, his attack on the money chambers, is really an attack on that oppressive system and the priests that run the temple, and that that was is what that is about. And the fig tree, that's what those all went back to, right? The fig tree's death is a sign of God condemning or cutting off the people who run the temple. That the people who run the temple are dead. Spiritually, physically, whatever, they're dead. That God is going to come, establish his kingdom, give us a real priest that is really of God, that's really going to do what God wants us to do. God's going to establish a kingdom that's going to replace the Roman system and replace the oppressive system of the temple and establish the temple as it was meant to be established. We're going to have a real temple with God really present and real human beings who love and serve God leading us and leading the world and mediating between God and man. That that is the promise that Jesus is giving us in the fig tree. That that is the promise that he's giving us in the overturning of the temple. It is a religious reality because it's believed by Jesus that it is God who is going to come and establish this. That it's not established the same way the Hasmoneans established it through military power. That it is not established by some kind of military uprising. 
that it is established by the will and power of God and that God's going to come in, radically transform the world, and give us the temple we deserve. Jesus never gives up the temple. Jesus never gives up the idea of sacrifice. This is in line with the way the prophets operated. The prophets said the same thing. The temple is corrupt. People do, running it are corrupt. They're corrupt because they are, they're just puppets of the king, and the king himself is corrupt. And we're going to come in, and, and God's going to come in, and he's going to take the king, and he's going to replace the king with the Messiah. And he's going to take, and he's going to cleanse the temple, and we're going to get a temple we deserve where God really lives and where people are doing what they're supposed to do. Jesus' argument at his time is not radically different from the prophets. This is why they spend time talking about Jeremiah. They're pointing out that Jesus is in line with a whole line of Jewish thought that precedes him. The point that Dominique Crossan and Borg are trying to make is that you have to think about Jesus as a first century Jew, as someone who is not saying anything radically different from what people at the time were saying, as a person who's not saying anything radically different from what the prophets said hundreds of years before, that there is a direct continuity between, between Judaism and what Jesus is doing, and that the idea that Jesus is trying to radically overthrow Judaism isn't there. That Jesus' problem, see, you can, you can approach the parables, Jesus' death, everything that's going on in one of two ways. The way that most Christians ap- approach it, when Jesus talks about the tenants, killing the landowner's son, when he talks about all these, when there's all these parables that are easily interpreted as Jesus talking about supersessionism. Supersessionism is the idea that Christianity replaces Judaism, that Judaism is dead, and that something new has come. That's one way to interpret a lot of what Jesus does, and it's an easy way to interpret it. It's not like you're, they're not, people aren't inventing it out of whole cloth. There's something to it when you read the scriptures, and a lot of Christians believe this. Croissant and Borg are saying that's wrong. There's another way to interpret Jesus talking about, that he is not in conflict with Jews or with Judaism, but that he is in conflict with the leaders that currently run Israel. And that that's the problem, and with Rome, and that that's the problem he's dealing with, that's how you should understand him, and that's the context in which you should place what he says and does. That's the point of this entire book, as far as I can tell, is to give us a sense of the continuity of what Jesus does, and then even ultimately Jesus' death with everything that comes in Judaism before. Yes, yes, justice over worship. Well, yeah. So essentially, in everything that Jesus tried to do, including the overturning of the tables uh, and coins and all this money thing, he was trying to uh, say that we have to have justice, but and justice, justice precedes, precedes worship. worship. Right. And that's in line, that's what the prophets are saying too. They're saying your worship in the temple is empty because you have no justice. Because your character and your behavior isn't right. Your worship in the temple is dead. So it's a message that we should first have justice. Right. And that's more important than worship. It's absolutely part of it. That, but see, that, that would have been the opinion of plenty of Jews of Jesus' time and all the prophets that precede him, or almost all the prophets. Yeah, justice, is, justice precedes worship. doesn't mean worship doesn't matter. Doesn't mean the temple doesn't matter. It means that if, if the people who are running the temple are not just, if they don't institute justice, and if the people are not living justice, their worship doesn't, it has no power. God isn't present in the worship because justice isn't present in those people's hearts. But the point is, is that that's not a new idea. 
Jesus isn't going, oh, look, I got a new idea. Justice precedes worship. That's like 90% of what the prophets are saying all the time. Amos, Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, all of them. Hosea, they're saying you have, to have, you have to live right before you can worship right. You have to have, you know, let justice roll down like a mighty stream. Those words are, aren't about the uselessness of worship. They're, the, they're about the uselessness of worship in the, hearts of, in the hearts of people who don't have any justice. But it's the continuity with that that Croissant and Borg are emphasizing. Now, there's one thing that they say that I want to um, criticize a little bit. When you, people who, who are really good at, who, people who are really good at trying to reconstruct the historical Jesus. It's funny because they say early on that their job is, not, we're not going to reconstruct the historical Jesus for you. We're going to tell you what Mark himself is saying. And we're going to leave the question of what the historical Jesus said aside. He's arguing that, that even what they're arguing here, what they're saying in the book, is not their attempt to tell you what really happened to Jesus. It's their attempt to tell you for what Mark is really saying about Jesus. So that even Mark is still a temple-centric Christian. Even the writer of Mark believes these things as we're presenting them. This is Jesus as Jesus is understood in the Gospel of Mark. But then they do these things sometimes where they go, but let, let's say what the historical Jesus really thought. So it kind of bothers me when they do that because they, they kind of promised at the beginning they wouldn't, but then they digress these moments and go, but this is what we think the historical Jesus really meant. So they argue, this is, this is something I've talked to people about all the time. This is also an important part of, the, of understanding the continuity between Christianity and Judaism. So in the, in the temple... A lot of people would have thought, think in terms of ancient Judaism, well, if you're not a Jew, if you're not circumcised, if you don't, if you don't forego pork, if you don't follow the law, you're going to hell. And Jews go to heaven, everybody else goes to hell. That's how people understand first century Judaism. We know that that's not true. And we know it because in the temple, you, the temple had a court, and you'd have the temple, and then you had the court. And the temple had places you could go. So different people could go deeper and deeper into the temple. This is a terrible drawing of the temple, but you know, like the temple was more like over here, but I'm just not a great, I'm not great at that stuff. Cartographer, I would never make it, I could never make it as a cartographer. But my point is, is that, that the deeper you go, depending on what, how cleansed you were, and at the very center, only the high priest could go into the very center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and there offer sacrifice of a special kind. And then only once a year. This outside area was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was a place where people who were not Jewish could come and worship God. It was meant for people. It was meant to fulfill the prophet's promise that all the nations of the world would come to the temple and worship Yahweh. And that's what the Court of the Gentiles was. A place where people who were not Jewish could worship God. You do not make a place for that for people who are hellbound. You don't open up an area for people who are going to hell to come and pray to your God. It's proof that Judaism didn't think, Jews didn't think that way. They believed that if you, that if you believed in God and even if you just acted right, that, you know, resurrection of the dead, life in God's kingdom was open to you. It's a huge deal. Most Christians do not know this. This is a very small piece of information that changed my, the way I thought about Christianity, what it all means, who God is, what Judaism is. Blew my mind. I did not know this. I mean, I, once I got into, got into seminary and Bible college and stuff like that, I started to learn this, but it blew my mind, right? 
that the Jews had a place where people who were Gentiles could come and worship God is a huge deal. Because you don't, you don't invite people who are hellbound to come and worship in your church. So, croissant and Borg, one of the things they want to argue is, see, this, all this activity, the turning over the temple, the money changers and all that stuff, are um, taking place in the court of the Gentiles. So it's where Gentiles came to worship. That's where you had all this activity. And they argue that Jesus can't possibly be concerned that the temple isn't a place where all people can worship. See, some people take, because Jesus mentions, hey, this is supposed to be a, a, a place of worship for all peoples. Well, Croissant and Marcus Borg go, well, it already was. It, it already was. So that can't be Jesus' concern. It can't, they say Jesus could not have possibly said those words. That has to be an invention of Mark because it didn't make any sense because people were already worshiping. But I think that that's, I don't think you can know that for sure that Jesus didn't said, say those words. That, that's something that, I, that bothers me when they're like, oh, we know Jesus, the historical Jesus didn't say that. I'm like, no, you don't. You know what the historical Jesus did or didn't say. That's as much your invention as other people's invention of, the, of what it all means. That's like, you, you don't know that. He could have meant something that you don't understand. You don't have the handle on everything that's going on. It bothers me when historians do that. All of a sudden, hey, we're not going to make commentary, but Jesus couldn't have said that. You don't know that at all. And so that was a little problem I had. It is possible to me that the scene, I believe that what they're saying is true. I believe the, the two things to understand in Jesus' ministry is Jesus' anger, not at Israel, not at, I absolutely believe, I believed it for a long time, that Jesus' conflict is not with Jews, but with the leaders of the Jews at that time in Israel, in Jerusalem. That that's what the whole thing is about. That and about a, a, a people of God that's going to be all-inclusive of Jews and Gentiles. I do believe that's another important part of Jesus' um, message and I believe that because of some of the stuff that happens after. It is possible, in my mind, that as much as Jesus was making a political act, statement about the leadership of the temple, that he was bothered by all this activity going on in the, in the court of the Gentiles, that he saw it as an impediment to worship. People are trading animals, people are trading money, and you're trying to pray. It seems to me that it's possible, that, and I think, I, I think this is true, that when he's in there and he sees this scene, the place where Gentiles are supposed to be praying, taken up by this, that it inspires him to act in that moment. There's something about the clearing of the temple that doesn't... Dominic Crossan and Bohr go really out of the way to argue that the triumphant entry into Israel is planned. They're right about that. They also go out of their way to say that the clearing of the temple is planned. It's a planned political protest. That's what they argue in this chapter. I'm not sure that that's true. It's possible that someone who already had a political agenda saw this, got angry, and acted. There's something about the scene that to me comes off as spontaneous, as something that just happened. And I think it's possible that seeing this scene where these people who he had already considered corrupt make running that system of exchange, whether it was okay or not, and seeing it interfere with people trying to pray, got him angry, and then he acted. That doesn't make it not a political act. It is a political act. But I think it was a more spontaneous one than Borg and Croissant think it is. 
But Mark puts it within a framing that makes it seem like it's a planned act. So that's, probably, that's my biggest quibble with this chapter. So besides that, that's all I got. Any questions, thoughts, comments? Right. No, it is. I mean, the Eucharist is understood to replace that. You don't have, there's no more. Um, and in fact, this is something that, that some people have a real problem with the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church is one of the only churches where the Eucharist is called a sacrifice. Most don't, even in the Catholic Church, they don't use the word sacrifice. This is our bounded duty and service sacrifice. We have that in the Eucharistic prayer, and it sets them apart. I think that that's cool because it creates continuity with what came before. But some people have a problem with the idea that sacrifice, um, they even point out that sacrifice literally means to make sacred. It's a sacred meal. But that's not what it's come to mean in our society. We think of like you have to, something has to die, something has to hurt to be made all right. And, um, and so that's why some people have a problem with the Eucharist being called a sacrifice. But in the context of what Borg and Croissant are saying, it's perfectly in line with it. Because they're just saying it's a sacred meal. That's right. Where does any of this other hamburger writing appear? It's all throughout Mark. I, I can't... Well, I can't. Yeah. Is it in Matthew? Is it in John? No, I mean, Mark's the one that's known for it. I mean, you, you have that style of writing, you know, in modern writing, and, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, I'm sure there's other places in the Gospels where it happens here and there. There's other places in Scripture where it happens here and there, because it's just a, a literary device. But Mark just does that. He's just like, here's the story. We're going to start the story. Wait, we got another story. Now we're going to come back to the original story. The original story wasn't the important one. It was the one in the middle. That's just the way he writes, the hamburger gospel. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? You, got, you have to suffer through me one more week, and then Mike's going to be back. So next week we're going to talk about, we're going to talk more about um, kind of what happened after the destruction of the temple, what that all meant, and, and how that influences what Mark does, and we're going to talk a little more, more, more about Apocalypse. So thank you all for coming. I appreciate it.